Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you have come along. This is the continuation of a series that we're hosting this summer on the future of three particular denominations. So we've already had our first two episodes with a progressive and conservative voice on the future of the Salvation Army. And today we start our podcast series where we're thinking about the Church of the Nazarene. So, and they have a legislative function that's happening later this summer. So it's, it's a good time for us to be thinking about these issues. And I'll be telling you about our guests in just a second. But before I do that, I want to make sure you know about a few things coming from my website and this platform that we have called More to the Story. My website's andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. And I would love it if you go and sign up for my email list. And if you sign up for my email list, you'll get a tool that you can use in your ministry called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. It's a 45-minute teaching session, and it comes with an eight-page document that you can use to help yourselves go deeper in Scripture, but also keeping in mind the aim of how you can creatively and passionately present those truths. So I would love for you to have that by signing up for my email list, and I periodically send out information about podcasts and other content that comes out from my site. Also, the this is a little funny for me to say, but I have just added a donate button. And this is a new way for me to be able to raise a little bit of support for some of the things I would like to do in the future. I'd like to have better videos that are beyond my capacity to create. I'd also love to do some things with bringing on extra guests and bringing on some more support to help us. So some people have asked about supporting more to the story, and you can do that at my website. I'd love for you to check that out. Also, there are courses and more courses being added. You can find my course, my six-week study on the Book of Judah. It's a video series that is meant for small groups and it has discussion guides, bonus content. I would love for you to check that out at my site. Also, I'm thankful that I have two sponsors for this, this podcast. And the first is Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders to serve faithful churches. And we serve churches all across the Wesleyan spectrum of many Nazarenes. And of course, we've just added, an, we've been approved by the Global Methodist Church. We, in the last six weeks, have added 120 course of study students, who people who are participating and seeking ordination in the Global Methodist Church. We'd love for you to check us out at wbs.edu. And finally, I'm thankful to my friend, Bill Roberts, who's a financial planner, who particularly has a gift for coming alongside of people who are in ministry to help them think about their retirement and how they can plan for that. So you can find out more information about Bill at WilliamHRoberts.com or information in the show notes. Okay. I am so glad to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Tom Ord, who serves as the director of doctoral, uh, doc, doctoral program at Northwind Seminary at the Center for Open and Relational Theology. He has been noted as one of the top 10, top most influential theologians in the world. And you can find a website where he's compared with people like William Lane Craig, uh, Alvin Planiga and people like that. And it's true because he's a significant voice in the life of the church and theological and philosophical studies, and particularly in his denomination where he serves as an elder in the Church of the Nazarene. He's somebody I've read, he's written more than 30 books. He's um, maybe one of his more influential books. There's a real practical book that he wrote with another author called Relational Holiness. Tom, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks for the opportunity to chat, Andy. It's um, I, it's one of these things, as I'm going through this series, I wondered at first, well, will I be able to get people to respond? Will will people be willing to come and have these conversations? And just as we're getting started here, I want to make sure people know this is not a debate. 
And the same thing is true with my other conversations. I just want there to be opportunities for clarity for people to be able to share where they think their denominations are, should be going and kind of like the nature of theology and how that how the denominations process that. So we were looking at the Salvation Army, um, the Church of the Nazarene, and the United Methodist Church. And Tom, the, one of the reasons that I brought you on is you have published a book just recently with your daughter. Uh, you've edited it, but uh, you have an introduction in more than 90 different voices called Why the Church of the Nazarene Should Be Fully LGBTQ Affirming. So this is obviously something that's geared towards your denomination. So before we get going too far, um, tell us about this book and what led you to that. Yeah, this book just came out in the spring of 2023. And uh, as you mentioned, 90 plus contributors, which means it's a big fat book, almost 500 pages. It's divided into three sections. The first section is a section of essays by what we are calling queer voices. So people who identify as LGBTQ plus. The second section are ally essays. And the last section we're calling leaders and scholars, and that's where the theologians, biblical scholars, and others in the denomination weigh in. And all of these essays are affirming. They sort of embrace the title of the book, Why the Church Should Be Fully Affirming. Uh, the book really emerged in my own uh, attempts to try to give voice to what I have found to be a significant portion of the denomination that wants to see a fully affirming position, which is currently, which is different than what the uh, human sexuality is currently in the uh, denominations manual. That's helpful. And I think some people might be surprised to know how big the Church of Nazarene is. I think the Salvation Army and the Church of Nazarene, as in Wesleyan holiness denominations, are the two largest. I mean, you have over, likely over a million members uh, globally, wouldn't you say? Uh, we're about 3 million globally, oh, wow. uh, about 500,000 in the U.S. Right. That's a very interesting um, fact, Like, and, and that's something that you bring up as well. And, and you project in the beginning, based upon some Barner research in your introduction, that there would be hundreds of thousands of people, in, in your view, who would move towards an affirming position. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of Nazarenes, and I Nazarenes. based that on uh, yeah, I based it on a, a research poll which asked poll which asked a question of Nazarenes, something to the effect of should uh, LGBTQ people be affirmed in society or something like that. It's a fairly uh, open-ended question. It's not real specific, but uh, over forty percent of Nazarenes said yes to that in this particular poll. Now, there's always issues you can raise with the validity of polls, but Given roughly 500,000 in the denomination, at least in the U.S., in which the poll was taken, I estimate, you know, hundreds of thousands of Nazarenes who think like I do on this issue. That's helpful. All right. Well, I have my the way I'm going about this process through this summer is that I developed a set of questions. And then I want to ask the exact same questions to, to both sides. And Great. so as much as I'm kind of like just wanting to go off on a few other tangents, I want to, yeah. I'm going to stick in with that. So the very first question that I'm going to ask is this, the, the Nazarene statement on human sexuality in the covenant of Christian conduct is the denomination's current position on human sexuality. What, if anything, do you think should be changed about the statement? Yeah, uh, the statement as it currently stands is the development of some recent work in the denomination, and that work has been 
uh, helpful. Uh, it's changed this, the language in ways, in many ways I find to be good. For instance, it, it erased a, a, a line that said something like um, that queer people have God's wrath on them or something like that. Uh, the denomination, the Church of Nazarene, actually didn't have a statement on uh, same-sex marriage or queer issues until the early 70s. So for the majority of our history, we've not had a particular statement. And then the statement that was um, given was not particularly helpful. But I want to comment about the current statement and why I think it should change. Sure. Um, in that statement, I've, I've actually printed it off so I can state it correctly here. No There's problem. a section that talks about what they call the brokenness. It says our brokenness in the areas of sexuality takes many forms, some due to our own choosing, some brought into our lives via a broken world. And then it talks about God's grace. And then under this brokenness, this is the particular paragraph that I have real problems with. It's, it's called um, this brokenness includes sexual activity between people of the same sex. And then the explanation says, because we believe it's God's intention for our sexuality to be lived out in the covenantal union between one woman and one man, we believe the practice of same-sex sexual intimacy is contrary to God's will for human sexuality. While a person's homosexual or bisexual attraction may have complex and differing origins, and the implications of this call to sexual purity is costly, we believe the grace of God is sufficient for such a calling. We recognize the shared responsibility of the body of Christ to be a welcoming, forgiving, and loving community where hospitality, encouragement, transformation, and accountability are available to all. So the key issue there is the uh, rejection of same-sex covenantal relationships and the belief that homosexual or bisexual attraction as is um, something that should be uh, rejected. Usually in conversations, people say people who are uh, have same-sex attraction should practice celibacy. Usually in the Church of Nazarene, the attraction isn't necessarily condemned. It may be called, uh, you know, depraved or something. Yeah, disordered. But, uh, disordered, yeah. But um, it's the actual acting out or the expressing of that in sexual intimacy that's uh, condemned as uh, this brokenness thing. Um, and so I disagree with that. I think that same sexual uh, attraction in and sexual intimacy and covenantal relationships between same sex people is uh, uh, can be a beautiful and good thing, a healthy thing. Um, in fact, I think um, I'm in, on board with the rejection of this promiscuity, excessive sexual interactions. And it seems to me that if a holiness denomination really wants to encourage people to avoid promiscuity, they ought to be in the business of pro promoting covenantal relationships and marriage. And, uh, and therefore, the Church of Nazarene and other holiness groups ought to be at the forefront of advocating for same-sex marriage rather than being against it. So mm. that's my big issue in wanting to see um, these kinds of things change. Now, usually what happens in the conversation, especially when it sort of filters out into the local church or the universities, there's other issues that arise. For instance, uh, the transgender issues are really big. When I was a professor at Northwest Nazarene, 
the president introduced a, a legislation to uh, prohibit any faculty member who came out as trans. Uh, I think that's the wrong move to make. So there's there's other sorts of LGBTQ issues that usually are brought into play, but the, the manual statement doesn't deal with lots of specifics on those kinds of things, like you right. know what to do with intersex sorts of issues. So I would like to yeah. see the manual change its language from calling same-sex intimacy in marital co uh, covenant relationships uh, a kind of brokenness that should be forbidden. And I would like to see us instead talk about love being our guide. And by love, I mean not just anything goes, but love as promoting well-being and healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me there's really strong evidence that same-sex couples can have that kind of healthy, loving uh, relationships. So- yeah, There's thank you. A, That's helpful. Let me, I'll just push for a few points of clarity um, yeah. on that. Now, it's interesting that you're moving towards like there being, would you use the word monogamous relationships, same-sex relationships, like that, that? that's what you would support? Is Yeah, you, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I that's what I meant by being against promiscuity and being faithful to a covenant when a person says, I'm going to commit to you for my life that, you know, that ought to be the case. You know, okay. there's always questions of divorce and the denomination has changed its views on divorce over the years, incidentally. But yeah, that's the, that's the goal. So it's interesting then to think about the other letters beyond L and G. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. So LNG. Sorry, I get myself confused. LGBTQIA. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait. Which one <laughs> yeah. did I say? Which? Yeah. Uh, and I don't mean that in any. Uh, like I'm not trying to yeah. make fun of it. But, but please don't hear that. Like um, I'm just. But but by the time you move through other other letters, you have a whole another set of of expectations right. and and within other denominations i don't know tom like if this is if what's happening in nazarendom as i call it like if there is a, a move towards embracing other forms of marriage that might include more than two people um like that that can be a part of like open relationships but i hear you saying like you still think it should be just two two people like then that do you think it should be restricted yeah. within the statement yeah, I mean, I think that that is the goal for most relationships. I say I qualify that because uh, the Church of Nazarene is a global denomination. And in some parts of especially the African continent, right. polygamy is a major issue. And uh, there have been instances in which the Church of Nazarene has said to men who have more than one wife, unless right. you get rid of one wife, you can't be a member. And so they've gotten rid of the other wives. Those wives have then been destitute. In fact, sometimes chosen a pass a path of uh, sexual. Um, uh, well, I'll just use the word prostitution since that's the word yeah, yeah. most people know. Um, and so there's been really harmful consequences for the rejection of polygamy. So um, I'm always reluctant to sort of set down a bunch of really specific rules that apply in every place and every time. But generally speaking, in the West, I think monogamous uh, relationships are the goal for this covenantal kind of uh, uh, scenario. I, I'm glad you bring that up because that is the issue that a lot of the other denominations are facing as well, is that they're global entities. And yeah. because of that, like the, the polygamy issues 
is one of the ones that comes up regularly. And now I wouldn't say that that would be the best way of handling that to leave somebody, so to speak, at the curb if um, by acknowledging the the challenges of polygamy. But you would you would be open then to the statement leaving space contextually for certain polygamous relationships? I think so, because uh, in my way of thinking, ultimately, it's the rule of love that we must follow. And while love often calls us to certain kinds of uh, relationships in certain situations, there's always the possibility of exceptions. And, um, you know, obviously, if you read scripture, polygamy is uh, practiced by some of the people who are regarded as God-fearing kinds of people. So um, even scripturally, we can't sort of erase that as, as out of the realm of possibility. But uh, generally, in the kind of Western societies in which we are part of, I think polygamy should not be practiced because I think it tends to undermine uh, the dignity of women. There might be some exceptions, but generally speaking, that's the case. And then doesn't correspond, as you'd say, to the rule of love. Now, now some people would suggest, though, that they're, they're, they have a legit identity in having being a part of a throuple, so, so to speak. Sure. Um, and I, I, I'm, again, of course, I'm not going to have a gotcha game with a philosopher, right? But at the same time, <laughs> like, yeah. I, just, I, I just, think I a think good example are, of that is the uh, I live out in the West in Idaho. Yeah. And, in Utah, there's still polygamy practice, and sometimes you'll people will interview uh, women who have one the same husband, and they seem to sometimes witness to uh, this arrangement being something they appreciate and like. Um, so yeah, there's uh, again, I, I I really try to avoid absolutes unless that absolute is love. So um, that's my general approach to things. I think one of the challenges is like the the line, like where it, I know uh, if there are no absolutes except for love, it's hard, then you don't have line. But like yeah, if there I think are, probably, yeah, go ahead. I sorry. Think that, but, there, but there are, there are some reasons to have lines, right? There, yeah. there'll be reasons like, and, and I'm not, uh, there would be some that suggest, well, what if people find their identity in being attracted to children? That's not like, or what if they find their identity in another expression, even just the existence of the now, I know I know bisexuals might not always say this, but there's kind of an implication that there's more than one partner involved in that arrangement sometimes. Oh, yeah, I don't I disagree with that. But I okay. see your your kind of worry there. You're it's usually in philosophy called the slippery slope argument. If you grant one exception, then why can't you, you know, uh, grant sure. bestiality or something, you know, if you're going to have sex with uh, someone of the same sex, why not have sex with a book or a bird or something like that? And I think that's, you know, been shown philosophically to be a fallacious way to reason. We have to ask the questions of well-being on a general kind of basis. And anytime we start getting a really distinct line, I think Jesus and scripture pulls us back to saying, no, there's going to be exceptions. You know, uh, in the church of Nazarene, we drew a line in the sand on the divorce. There it was. And then people said, hold on a second, that actually doesn't work. There are reasons in which divorce might be the best of, of the bad options. And so we had to say, ah, yeah, you're right. We can't really draw that line in the sand in the same kind of way. So I think it's better to have general principles and allow for exceptions. And people who want really black and white things are going to have hard times with that. I get that. 
Yeah. And sometimes you teach your children these kinds of things because they're developmentally not able to handle complex and uh, you know, gray areas of life, you might say. But um, our problem has been in Christianity, and it's in scripture even, that when we draw these really strong lines, every time some sort of exception arises. And I think that's true in the sexuality issues as well. So then from like a, a policy perspective of what you might would hope would happen from the General Assembly, would yeah. that be, and this is my last question on the first one. Uh, oh, we're still on the first one, okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, sorry, we will go, we'll get moving, folks. I'll move All faster. Right. Um, would you rather just be, and I think this could be a quick answer, uh, just eliminate the whole statement, or do you think there needs to be a new statement that explicitly articulates it? Because I wonder if it would ever satisfy, like it, we'd have to update it next time too. Oh, it'll never be perfect. It never has been perfect. Right, right. Uh, so if you're going to General Assembly thinking, oh, this year, we're going to get it right, and it's going to be that way forever, you're really thinking about the manual the wrong way. Yeah, the manual sure, sure. is a flexible document. It always has been, always will be. At least I hope it always will be. I guess technically it could, someone could fix it. We could turn into the Amish or somebody like that, something like that. But uh, I don't think that's going to happen for us. So my preference would be, that we uh, have statements related to love, that we offer guidelines, but always know that there can be exceptions and these are principles by which we need to then apply into particular circumstances. Perfect, okay. I mean, clear, I mean, I, I would disagree, of course, but I'm, that's not my function here. Okay, second, second question. The Board of General Superintendents recently ruled that doctrine for the purpose of the denomination includes the Articles of Faith, the covenant of Christian conduct and the covenant of Christian character. Do you agree with that? How do you define doctrine within the church of Nazarene? I know there's two questions there, but like, let's just yeah. agree with the fact that they've put these things together. These I, I should have looked at that statement again, because I don't think it quite says it the way you put it here. I think it says something like the articles, the covenant of Christian conduct and the covenant of Christian character are all considered essential. Oh, okay. Okay. So, I mean, the spirit of your question is there. Just I'm, I'm quibbling a little bit on the language. Go ahead, yeah. Um, so I think this was a bad move. Let me start with that. Even Let if me, it's just like they're on the same level. Even yeah, if, if, if they're on the same level. Yeah, I think it's a bad move. Let me give uh, begin by saying uh, there may have been a motive here that I can appreciate. And that is the motive that um, in the Church of the Nazarene, and I think Wesleyans in general, we, under, we, we tend to believe that um, being a Christian isn't simply about having the right doctrines, the right set of beliefs. It's a way about living our lives. And if the uh, intent is to say, you know, it all, it's all, we want to make sure that it, the Christian character and code of conduct is also important, then mm -hmm. Thumbs up on that. I think that's a really important Wesleyan uh, emphasis. It's actually one of the things when I argue with my more reformed folks who tend to have a greater emphasis upon having the right beliefs that we want to say no, having living a life of love, having the right practices is also super important. So that's a positive spin on what, right. what's there. But I don't think that was the motive behind this. This particular statement, as I understand it, uh, that makes all of the aspects of the manual equal in importance and as essential uh, was issued to the North American uh, 
region of the denomination, not the whole denomination. And it's very likely that this was uh, emphasized and placed forward as a way to try to evade an argument that I and some others have been making when we've gone through trials for being uh, LGBTQ affirming. And the argument has been uh, an ancient one that was affirmed by Phineas Brzee, our, our sort of major patriarch, that uh, in essentials, we seek unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. In all things, we should have charity or love. Right. And the argument has been that I've made that the articles of faith rely on the more essential side of things, these things about who Jesus is, sanctification, all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. Um, the code of Christian conduct, the rules and things, those are not essential. And I think this statement is issued as a way to try to close up that argument so that people like me can't make the argument that like, yeah, we should all agree on the articles, but we can have differences of opinion on the code of conduct. I think the upshot of this, however, this, this ruling uh, that all of these matters are essential aren't somehow equal is that it's returning the church of the Nazarene to a position that we have been doing pretty good job of avoiding the last two or three decades. And that's a position that says holiness is primarily about the rules. Mm. Um, that was the kind of understanding I had about holiness as a kid. And that's what the holiness tradition was often known for. You know, we don't drink, dance or chew or go with girls who do all these kinds of things that we were not doing. These are the rules that you followed. And that way of living was just so stifling. It did not have the, the, the joy of the spirit. And uh, many in the church in Nazarene realized they needed to change that emphasis. They realized that John Wesley thought of love as the center and these rules as principles or expressions of love. But what this recent ruling does uh, is to try to say, yeah, I think it ends up placing those rules up at the top again. And I think that's a bad thing. And, and with those rules, I presume are statements about human sexuality. Yes, I'm sorry. I should have made that clear. Yeah. Oh, no, I just want, I mean, that, that's part of, I mean, likely part of why it, it's come about now is like that's in question. Yeah, so I in think that that's case, what it's all about. Yeah. Sure. It, what is, um, what's the, what do you think should be the basis uh, or, or the, the defining aspects of doctrine in the Church of Nazarene? And let me give you a second as you're thinking about that. Uh, this is an issue, of course, what's happening with the United Methodist Church be moving toward a global Methodist church. There's this move away from what their book of discipline calls the theological task, and they where they had embraced, and we'll talk about the Western quadrilateral in a little bit, but um, th that's not going to be a part of the global Methodist church. Um, this is, the, is what's the issue in the Salvation Army as well. There is a, our, what used to be called Articles of War, or now is Soldier's Covenant, where there's doctrines, and then a therefore I will live this way. So I just want to highlight as we're talking about this from my people from other denominations who aren't just Church of Nazarene, this yeah. is an issue. This is a key issue. So what is then doctrine, uh, Tom, for a Church of Nazarene? What should it be? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, one of the things that Church of Nazarene has done is to say when they bring in new members that um, there's this particular shorter paragraph that we call an agreed statement of belief that's much more general. And it doesn't require you to, you know, have a particular atonement theory or whatever. 
Um, and I think that's a good principle to live by in terms of organizing uh, a group, a denomination. You should have these sort of uh, smallest list as possible of things that you think are these agreed statements. And it's fine for let for, to let weird theologians like me then write out all these detailed claims about atonement, Christology, all that sort of stuff. I think there's a place for that. I'm not saying we should kick that out. Those are instructional, but I don't think they should carry the same weight as these more essential agreed statement of belief kinds of things. So when I think about doctrine, I think about uh, these kind of kind of um, um, levels of importance. And um, I'm not uh, for kicking out every level. I just think we should have different uh, requirements depending on how essential or non-essential something is. Give me a few things that would be essential. Trinity. Well, I think, let me see if I can find the agreed. Well, I don't have the agreed statement of belief. I don't think the Trinity is an agreed statement of belief. Um, mm. it, yeah, I wish I had it in front. I of I was me. just curious, not knowing yeah. it myself, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but what, what, what beliefs would you think are essentials yeah i mean i think something about the centrality of jesus is probably central if you're going to be a christian uh that there is a god you know for me i think god is love is primary uh, we can throw in some other attributes but also understand that those attributes are understood differently for instance i'm an open theist so i think god is omniscient but what i think god knows is different from what other people think god knows so there should be room for variety under that. Um, but I think in the task of trying to specify the essentials, uh, we need to avoid the long list approach to things uh, because at the end of the day, it um, turns us more into legalists and people who think that uh, having the right set of beliefs is the most important rather than what I think the Wesleyan tradition has said is that it's this life of love that's most important. I think that's what Jesus actually was all about. Yeah. He uh, oftentimes criticized the Pharisees for emphasizing all kinds of rules and things and kept saying things like, uh, you know, people weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for people as a way of saying in this, the rules aren't, people aren't made to follow rules. The rules are made to help people live a, a good life. Some Wesleyan denominations uh, put uh, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, um, maybe some even Constantinople and Creed. Like, what would you um, would you support that? Any like putting a creed at the foundation? I happen to not like the Apostles' Creed, so <laughs> I, I, I thought that might be the case. I just I throw it out there. I just give you a chance uh, to say that. I mean, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, yeah, that I know this is a whole a course. I'm sure you have a lecture on the Apostles' Creed, but <laughs> yeah, but you you wouldn't want that included. So let, let me just uh, you wouldn't well, want that included I mean, in the. I don't know if you've read the Creed lately. Well, I'm sure you know the Creed. It has nothing to say about love, and for me, that's the central message of Jesus. So it'd be weird to have to require a creed that has nothing about the central message of Christianity. So yeah, I got some problems even with those kinds of things, um, and. I guess I have a more approach to, to life that uh, we need to allow for lots of diversity. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that, Tom, so clearly. I appreciate yeah. it. Um, this is a question I think I'm, I'm really interested in how both sides will answer it. Um, what will happen if your positions on scripture, human sexuality, don't win out this uh, whenever, this, whenever the General Assembly happens uh, in your denomination? Like, what... 
what's going to happen um, if if that if the general assembly goes against some of the proposals that you'd like to see made? Yeah. And let me start by answering that question personally, and then kind of move it more generally, because I think your sure. your intent was to have a more general. Personally, okay. if uh, my positions on these issues don't win out, I'll probably lose my ordination. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not saying man. that with any triumphalism, like, yeah, probably. I think. Yep. Yeah. There are people who have been gunning for me for years. My district superintendent, I think uh, would like an opportunity or an excuse to uh, get, take away my ordination. And so if this assembly doesn't change its rules to something like what I want, I suspect they're going to come after me. Now, I don't expect this general assembly to change its mind on this. Hmm. So this is now coming at your bigger question, which well, at least what I interpret as your bigger question. And that is, um, you know, will this issue on human sexuality and the changes I want to see, does this have a chance of make, uh, make, being changed by the denomination? And I doubt it in this coming June. Just knowing in, the numbers that you do. Just knowing, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. However... I suspect in 20 years, my position will be the majority. Hmm. I say that because I know demographics. And at least in the U.S. and Europe, younger people, people under 40, according to polls, they think like I do. And time is on the side of my position. So uh, one strategy could be, uh, if I think the momentum is changing toward the view that I think is the best one, one strategy is, okay, I'm just going to stay a part of the group until that changes, and I'm going to, you know, weather the storm. Um, I feel like that's been what God is calling me to do in this situation. But others have walked away from the denomination, and they believe that that's what God is calling them to do. I got no problem with them. I'm not shaming them or saying they're doing the wrong thing. Um, I think when it ultimately comes down to the to is the question of how we each believe God is calling us to live a life of love. And I think the Church of the Nazarene in general has a set of beliefs that I really like and can affirm, but its statement on human sexuality is one that I think is wrong. It doesn't express well the love that I think God calls us to have and that is modeled by Jesus. So um you know, a lot of people right now, since the book has come out, they've said to me, Tom, why don't you just become a United Methodist, leave the <laughs> church, walk away, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the question, yeah. Yeah, and it's a fair question, because a lot of people are doing that. In fact, a lot of people are saying to me, Tom, you're so divisive, this is right. going to split the church. And my answer to those people is, the church is already split. Yeah, it's yeah. been splitting for decades as young people have been walking away from this denomination. According to Pew polls, the Church of the Nazarene is dead last amongst religious groups for retaining our youth. Mm -hmm. The only people who are worse than the Nazarenes for retaining youth are the atheists. Mm -hmm. We're the worst. And this issue, I'm sure, given my conversations with people, is one of the reasons people are leaving. So the church is already splitting. And what's happening is a huge number of younger people are walking away. So I'm not dividing the church. <laughs> I don't think of it like that at all. I'm alerting people to the problem and proposing a solution. Now that makes people who think differently than me upset. I get that. 
there's reasons for that and we can talk about that in this conversation later but um so my feeling at this time is that the spirit is calling me to stay and try to make room for future generations who have a view of love and sexuality more like mine than the one currently in the manual. So if that, if, if something happens where you were, your credentials were removed or taken away, whatever the right Nazarene way of saying that is, yeah. um, if that happened, then, then you're no longer in the denomination. What would there be any sense of, I mean, you're a well-known person within the denomination. You've written, you've edited this book. Is there a sense, is there any kind of stirrings of there being a, a progressive version of the Church of the Nazarene emerging separate? Um, it, the reason I ask this is like this is happening in other denominations where people are moving on a path that's contrary to the what has continually been affirmed by the denomination. And it's it can be frustrating f- for people who are on different sides of the issue to say, hey, I thought we've affirmed this, but mm-hmm. – these folks are going to, going to stick in as long as they can until they win. It's like, well, mm. oh, we thought that this, and I'm sorry to use win-loss languages. Yeah, I get you. Win-loss language, but nevertheless, like this, this can be trouble. Like, we, yeah. it is a free country, free world. Go ahead and like, yeah. Why not just go someplace where there's an opportunity to uh, bring people around and let's see who can serve the Lord better. Yeah, it's a fair question. You know, when people ask it, I I like to respond by saying. Um, you know, back in the uh, 80s, when we changed our view on divorce, did you ask the people who wanted to see the change to leave and go into denom- another denomination? And when the change occurred, did you say to everybody who didn't want it, well, you have to now leave? No, I don't think we did that, at least not in, as far as I know. Uh, what we did is we went through a difficult process, a process in which people had really firm opinions on both sides. And at the end of the day, uh, one side, to use your language, won, and the other didn't. Some people may have left over that. I don't know the details, but it seems to me that the majority ended up staying. And um, I think that'll probably happen in this case. Now, more specifically to your question about whether or not there's going to be a new denomination, I'm not forming a new denomination. I know there's some people who've talked about that, but I'm not in the midst of, um, I'm not leading that. Yeah. Okay, this is really helpful. And it seems like you understand the other side well, and you've worked with, you know, you've been on, probably served on faculties with people who disagree with you and had good conversations, probably similar to what we're having. Um, But what's the primary issue of those on the other side of the theological spectrum in the Church of the Nazarene? Yeah, let me first say um, that people who differ from me on this issue, many of them, I suspect most of them, have good motives and are good people. Some of them are wise people and smart people. So I want to be clear that I'm not saying people who disagree are stupid devil worshipers or whatever. (laughs) Now, there are some really mean people on that side too. And they've been flinging things at me on social media the last month that makes me really, you know, not feel good about myself. (laughs) In fact, I'm I'm keeping a list of all these things people have said about me because I'm writing a book and I'm going to, I'm going to use that, that book someday. But anyway, let me okay. start by saying um, people who disagree with me can be smart, loving people. I think the biggest thing they would say at, that makes them opposed to my proposed changes is they think the scripture is on their side. 
So, um, you know, when people see the title of the book, Why the Church of the Nazarene Should Be Fully LGBTQ Plus Affirming, many of them, without reading a single word in the book, respond to me, I stand with the Bible, or this is not the Bible that I know. Now, um, that response frustrates me because it sounds to me like they think that the people who wrote in the book never even considered reading the Bible, <laughs> like, that they've never actually thought through right, the seven right. or eight passages that, that the, the other people interpret as being opposed to LGBTQ issues. And most people that, at least from my experience, who are affirming like I am, that was where we started. For me, it was in the early 1990s. I started thinking about this issue, and so I went to those particular passages, the, Levit the Leviticus one, man should not lie with a man, Sodom and Gomorrah story, Romans chapter one, and we worked through those, and we came to different interpretations, oftentimes believing that the injunctions there, the statements there were culturally defined or were misunderstood, and we've taken those passages seriously and work through them and come to a different position. But I, I just want to say up front, it's usually the Bible that people who differ from me begin with. Um, I could look at some of those particular passages if you want to, but I, th I think what I, think I want is people can get your book and I recommend it. Sure. They, they, and I see like you have various people who've looked at that. And, and honestly, like I've had people on my podcast in the past to, to talk through those passages. I, think, yeah. I, I don't know if we need to go into the, those type of specifics, but I appreciate your willingness to do it. Um, okay. Well, then let me answer your question. Not uh, your question was what's the primary issue on the other side of the issue in the Church of Nazarene? And I answered what the people would say is that they think they have the Bible on their side. Right, right. Yeah. I don't actually think that's their primary issue, however, even oh, though that's what they say. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So what do you think? I, uh, this is this is really interesting. Oh, yes. man, you kind of baited me. I'm so excited. <laughs> what is the real issue? I think the real issue is aesthetics. Interesting. What I call the yuck factor. Okay. When I talk to people about these issues, they oftentimes say it's just not right to see a man kiss a man or penises were meant for vaginas, not anuses or hmm. yada, yada, yada. And I think it comes down to a, a repulsion, a revulsion maybe that a lot of people have when they see same sex uh, interaction or imagine what happens in the bedroom between two men. And that gives them the creepies, the yuck factor. And mm -hmm. I think this is a really important issue. I mean, it, it's really the issue that was, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, we called the worship wars, whether or not you're going to have rock and roll or traditional, and it's still a war, but really that came right. down to aesthetics, right? Because even though some of the popular or the uh, rock and roll songs had thin lyrics, some of the lyrics from the hymns were also crap, right? Sure, <laughs> so it wasn't sure. just a matter of theology. Or repetitive. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's fundamentally an aesthetic issue for many people, even though it's disguised in terms of scripture. And aesthetics really matter. They really do. And sometimes our aesthetics can change, but other times they can't. As an example, um, my wife likes to eat tuna fish sandwiches. Tuna fish drives me nuts. I hate the smell of it. 
and we've been married 30 plus years and I still can't be in the same room as she is when she's eating a tuna fish sandwich. It's just an aesthetic um, issue for me. Now, early in our marriage, I also didn't like vegetables, but over time that's changed and now I eat vegetables regularly. So here's an issue of aesthetics in which one, um, one strong objection I've never been able to overcome and another I've changed over time. I think that is at the heart of many of the objections, the, we'll call it the more conservative side has. They'll call it, you know, breaking natural laws or doing unnatural things, but I think it's ultimately a matter of uh, taste. Hmm. This is interesting, like just like a psychological evaluation. And so I'm somebody who holds a conservative position on human sexuality. Um, yeah. And I, so I listen out, I listen for these conversations. It hasn't been something I've heard brought up, like even just the the language you described, the anatomical language is not something that I've I've heard people say. But you did start to move in a direction toward like kind of like natural law yeah. arguments, which I think it, it like are you suggesting that people who make an argument from creation or or natural law arguments that, that those are uh, really aesthetic issues? Uh. Sometimes they're aesthetic issues, uh, but I think other times they're cultural or habitual issues. So, you know, people who say, well, natural law, obviously penises go in vaginas and that's the way it is in the animal world. But when you actually look at the animal world, there's lots of same sex sexual intercourse. Bonobos are the great example of this because uh, male bonobos have um, sexual expressions often in, in that culture. But probably a better example uh, is that Romans 1 passage that I mentioned earlier, which talks about uh, lust, and then it says exchange the natural for the unnatural there. Uh, that's often a passage that's brought up here. Now, that word in Greek that's called unnatural is also the word Paul uses to talk about men having long hair and how that's unnatural. But we, we see that passage, even though it's the same word, and we say, well, that's a cultural thing. You know, that's since the Beatles have come to the U.S., you know, long hair and men, no one thinks that's a sin. At least no one. That's a little strong. But most people don't think that's a sin. And it's the same word used there. And so it's easier then for someone in my position to say what Paul is objecting to in Romans 1 is a cultural issue, uh, not something that's somehow biologically determined. Well, it's good to know that that's your position and that that's kind of where you where you stand. I just refer people back. I can't help us a little bit. I'm sorry. Just to, uh, <laughs> you can go back to my our conversation. You can't quite Seminary. have this. I'm you trying can't quite really have hard this conversation without getting your points in. <laughs> so I just say we've had some conversations about this on my podcast in the past. And yeah. uh, we hosted a conference <laughs> in February. Robert Gagnon responded to that same issue. But I'm going to leave it there, Tom. I'm going to leave it there. Okay. I, I appreciate I, I'm really going to try to honor the process. And I appreciate the, Thank you. <laughs> the cordial way that you're even uh, handling me in this. Like, it'd be easy for yeah. us just to get mad at each other. Um, yeah. So I, 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 do, I do really value that. And it's, it, it's a blessing to be able to, to have this conversation, even though I strongly disagree with what you just said. Nevertheless. All right, let's get on to the next question. Um, how do you approach, or, and this is connected. Like I put these, we got to yes. have these questions next to each other and importantly, and so I was kind of waiting. I, I think this will give more clarity to what you just said. 
how do you approach or weigh the so-called Wesleyan quadrilateral? You got my opinion of that there. Um, so-called Wesleyan quadrilateral of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Yeah. Can we weigh um, that? You know, the quadrilateral is a heuristic tool that can be helpful, but, you know, not even John Wesley affirmed the quadrilateral as we understand it today. Um, so, but I'm not saying we should dismiss it. It's just a way of thinking about the different tools we use to try to make decisions on the tough issues like we're talking about here. Um, I would say that the strongest argument against my position is not scripture, it's tradition. I think the position that I'm proposing here is opposed by the majority in Christian tradition throughout history. Now that's changing today, but certainly I have true. to, what's that? It certainly is true. And it's certainly yeah. not what yeah. the church has affirmed. Yeah. So if you're a person who thinks that to be a Christian is to affirm what the majority of Christians have affirmed throughout history, then you got an argument against me that I have a hard, going to have a hard time with. Now, of course, I can easily go to things like, well, the majority of Christians didn't want women preachers and, you know, all those kinds yeah, of arguments. Sure. But um, that tradition argument is a strong one against my view. Um, usually people in my position will say, well, experience is where I'm going to lead, right? Um, I want to start with scripture, but let me talk a little bit about experience before I talk about scripture. Uh, experience, I think we should understand in two ways. Usually experience means something like particular experiences of the Holy Spirit or life that becomes informative on how we think about these issues. So in the, my case, I can say, look, I've hung out with same-sex couples that have healthy lives and marriages. They flourish. Their children that usually adopted or whatever from previous marriages, they flourish. Uh, that's evidence that uh, God blesses, so that, that this can be a loving and, and healthy kind of thing. So that's a common argument I will use and people in my camp will use. I'm on board with that argument. But there's, a, I think, a more interesting and more fundamental way in which experience should be understood. And that is the notion that every one of us starts with our experience when we think about tradition, when we think about scripture, when we think about science, when we think about the world. In other words, we can't help but start with experience in the general sense, because that's the way we understand reality. And that, I think, is an important point because it means that no one comes to the Bible without some kind of influence perspective from their history, their background, their life uh, events, etc. And that's going to influence how we interpret the text. Uh, it's inevitable, I think. No one gets beyond that, I think. So people who come to me and they say, you know, I don't interpret the Bible. I just read it for what it is. Well, I think they're wrong. Everybody interprets the Bible. Even the translations we have are interpretations of the past text. So in, in that sense, experience is fundamental to anything we do. So, but let me make my main point. <laughs> um, I want to start with scripture on this issue. I not only think there are biblical passages that support queer approaches to things, passages like Jesus talking about eunuchs that are made, some are born, and some are chosen to be eunuchs, passages that Paul in which he talks about there's no longer male nor female, but our identity should be in Christ, passages in which Paul talks about himself breastfeeding, taking on feminine images, 
passages about uh, Jonathan and David. It seems to be some sort of uh, a romantic, at least deeper friendship than what we, we oftentimes have thought. Uh, Joseph and his coat of many colors has been interpreted as a queer character. There's a lot more in scripture that a person can take on board from my perspective than a lot of people have understood or, or at least uh, seen over the years. But ultimately for me, it's not about weighing the seven passages or so that have, you know, man should not lie with man versus my set of queer passages and saying, okay, where does the balance kind of set up? Because we're all using our interpretive methods in both these sorts of things. Ultimately, for me, I ask the question, what is the major message of scripture as I understand it? And the major message of scripture as I understand it is that God is a God of love who calls us to live lives of love. And then the question is, can queer, same-sex marriage, covenant relationships be expressions of love? And if love is not understood primarily as desire, which a lot of Christians have, including the greats like Augustine, if love is understood primarily in terms of well-being, blessedness, shalom, abundant life, then it seems to me the answer is pretty clear from my experience. That is, yep. There's lots of queer couples who have good marriages, who have good relationships. Now, I don't want to set up queer people as like, you know, they've got it all perfect. There's bad ones too. <laughs> Just like there are bad heterosexual marriages, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. But um, it seems to me that if we take scripture first and we think the themes of love are predominant, we have a strong case for being LGBTQ plus affirming. Interesting. The, it's interesting to me that there are... Uh, scholars who would think that the church should who would have your view of what the church should do now uh, somebody like bill loader in australia who would suggest that jesus likely would have uh, been against same-sex activity if there was any kind of concept of marriage or anything like that but just simply said that he disagrees with jesus um and, and i think like or some would suggest that jesus when he did speak about marriage in Matthew 19, or that there was, um, he had, from your position, maybe even say that Jesus had inadequate knowledge, that he didn't fully know uh, the context of what was going on. And I think that those, those pose some other, other problems uh, for the nature of what the Bible means and the authority of the Bible, and also even understanding Christology. Like, is Jesus limited in his knowledge? So there, there are those things like that. I appreciate. What's that? That seems like an obvious one to me. Jesus is obviously limited in his knowledge. You know, when the woman touches him, he says, who touched me? Something like he doesn't know something. Or when he says the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Yep, dead wrong about that one. So yeah, Jesus's knowledge is definitely limited. Okay. All right, so the sixth question. <laughs> that was good. You disagree with me, but you didn't come back. I, I love it, Andy. Anything. I didn't say it. I didn't give any yeah, response. I'm I just have, I have 100 plus podcasts so people can go check out my, the way I might disagree with you. Um, should the, I just look down. You saw that. I was looking yep. up and then I looked down. I saw. This isn't the time. This is, this is not what I, I would be violating. We didn't have a contract. I would be violating the contract if I would have gone further there. Should the Church of the Nazarene keep a unified manual? Or should there be greater flexibility for regions to address particular questions of faith and practice? Andy, this was the question I had the hardest time with. People might think that the previous ones were really the tough ones, but this was the toughest one for me. 
Um, because I feel tensions, as you've already probably seen or heard in my conversation, that on the one hand, I want things that can unite us, but on the other hand, I want flexibility given context and things. Now, the, the manual of the Church of Nazarene already has statements in it that allow for uh, flexibility. Let me read a couple of them. This is 28.1. The Church of Nazarene purposes to relate timeless biblical principles to contemporary society in such a way that the doctrines and covenants of the church may be known and understood in many lands and within a variety of cultures. Or another statement, this is uh, 28.2, is further recognized that there is a validity in the concept of collective Christian conscience as illuminated and guided by the Holy Spirit. The Church of the Nazarene, as an international expression of the body of Christ, acknowledges its responsibility to seek ways to particularize the Christian life so as to lead to a holiness ethic. Now, what is that actually meant in practicality? It's actually meant that if you're a Nazarene in Europe and you drink beer, no one gives you a hard time, mm -hmm. even though you're not supposed to drink alcohol, according to the manual. It means that if you're in Africa and you have more than one wife, then your people are probably going to let you slide on that issue. There's always going to be kinds of exceptions that are in this because of the culture context. I think that's a healthy way to go about having a denomination. But I recognize the worry that people have of like, well, if we're going to let all these exceptions go, then what keeps us together and sure, sure. what unites us and why even have a manual with these statements of what you can and can't do? I get that. Um, so um, I guess I to answer your question, I want to see regionalized and contextual uh, claims made. And um, maybe that's the way that the LGBTQ issue will eventually kind of play out in the denomination. I don't know. Um, but I, I just want to put on the table, I understand the worry that people have when I say things like that, because they'd like to have a nice black and white, these set of rules applied every time and every place. And I just don't think that's the world we live in. Yeah, that's helpful. And that's been the approach that's happened, the uh, proposals that have been made in the United Methodist Church is for there to be a contextualized application of their book of discipline. Now, like you said earlier, that already exists because they have an active lesbian to, in a, as a bishop in the Western jurisdiction. The same thing yeah, is true. Up like, where I'm at. Yeah. Pl same places where um, the, they've ref they have decided not to enforce the discipline. Um, well, another thing is, in, uh, another question I have is related well, to higher institutions. Oh, go, you want to further? You want yeah, to say let me, else? let me uh, throw a bone to the people who disagree with me, okay? And, well, that's and, nice and, of you. Yeah, and to say um, there are some times in which people make claims and say it's a contextualization issue that I think they're wrong about. In other words, they take my principle which says we have to ask in the context of whether or not something is right. And people make decisions that I think are the wrong decisions. A good example of this is female genital mutilation. Like there are some cultures in which they think that's the appropriate thing to do. And I think it's wrong. I just think it's flat wrong, but they're using the principle that I'm putting on the table. 
So I just want to admit that even though I think this is the right way to go, it's not an airtight slam dunk case for all the things that I think are good in the world. That's helpful. Um, you've been, in, you've had like those who are already engaged in Church of Nazarene likely know about some of your story in that there was a period where you worked for well over a decade at Northwest Nazarene University and then were let go as a result of some, not even, I'm not sure if it's particularly these views. No, not it wasn't being in that world. Views. More no. like open theism probably was what drove that. Um, so one thing that I think is a concern for institutions as a whole, and this could be um, not, not just denominations, but it's particularly too true with denominations, that if somebody has the logo of that denomination or the name, and you have a distinct name, I always remember people saying, look, Andy, you might think that the Salvation Army is the closest thing in the New Testament, but I stand in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. I get it. Like, I, know, I know that's you, right? You have a yeah. really distinct name. Like, yeah. and, and, and that name, oh, and that name is one that is used uh, through some really uh, developed educational institutions in the United States, at least that I know of. And um, these have many people who aren't Nazarene attend. I, I grew up listening to the radio station connected to Olivet. Uh, you know, okay. the Salvation yeah. Army uses Nazarene schools, Nazarene Bible College. But there is some there is some tension right now in that many in in those institutions at those universities don't affirm, particularly in the theology and Bible departments, don't affirm the Church of Nazarene position. Is could you address this issue? It, this issue, obviously, it's closely connected to your own experience. Um, but should there be should there be uh, alignment at education institutions with the doctrine and disciplines of a denomination? Let me begin. I'm going to answer your question, but let me begin by saying this. If you and I went through all of the theology Bible departments of the Church of Nazarene in North America, and we took all the names, and then we randomly selected 10 names from that list, okay. and we asked them their views on LGBTQ, the majority would agree with me. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. Knowing several, yeah. Yeah. So we've got a faculty in the educational institutions that have views that differ from the manual. That's right. Now, this really pisses people off for a more on the conservative slide like you, because I'm not saying you have this view, but many people from that perspective think that the institutions of the United of the of the uh, denomination, Almost. the universities, <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> um, that they ought, their role is to promote and defend whatever the denomination decides, in, in this case, the manual. So they think that if they send their, their sons or daughters off to the university, that they're going to be virtually indoctrinated in the right sets of beliefs from the manual. That may be a little strong, but that's, you know, the, the basic view. Um, that way of thinking presupposes that the manual is a set doctrine, set set of issues, and that it doesn't really change and we have to just defend it. But as I mentioned earlier, I think the manual of the Church of Nazarene and, and any healthy denomination is always in flux, is always on the move. And here's, I'm going to say something that maybe your listeners are really going to think is radical, but I'm going to say it anyway. The the average Nazarene, I think, 
should be held to a higher standard when it comes to affirming the manual than the average ordained elder. Hmm. And the average theologian should be held to a lower standard than either the elder or the um, uh, average person in the sense that the more education and responsibility a person has, the more responsibility they have to make changes to the fundamental ideas of the denomination. So theologians in the universities shouldn't be shouldn't be have their feet held to the fire to to say all the right things according to the manual to a greater level than anybody else rather they should be the ones who we should say how should we help how should we think about these things what needs to change and so because of that of course this is going to make more conservative people because by definition conservative people want to conserve the past it's going to make them really uneasy about the role of the university but my way of thinking that the greatest flexibility ought to be amongst the most educated in the denomination. Interesting. Well, that's helpful to hear. Um, my last question is this. With, uh, <laughs> okay, I'm at a confessional school and we do, like we affirm the authority of, of scripture. We use the word inerrancy. We're, we like the Church of Nazarene, emphasize the doctrine of entire sanctification. So just in case people are wondering where, where I'm coming from, and that's, a, <laughs> that's something that we have. Like we ask yeah. those questions, and I'm sure you've been asked those questions as yeah. part of interviews. You, you work for multiple institutions. Like that's a, uh, so I don't think I need to articulate where I am on that. Like I think that an institution yeah. that exists does that with an intention. Now, if you're not connected to a denomination, like you are now, I mean, Tom, like, what if, they, they let you come and run a center that's focused on the thing that you're passionate about. And so um, I think that's a great thing. I think it's a great thing for society, for there to be ideas. And we want our, I, I want, I mean, I, I don't think this will be a surprise to you, but I want my students to interact with your ideas, Tom. Oh, like, thanks, I want, I want people to hear your perspective and like your your people and I want my students to read read this book. I want them to know what's going on. So I, I'm all for liberality of ideas and I want people to be able to discern them. But I do think there's a role for confessional institutions. And so I just wanted to I'll let I'll let you respond to me if you if you want there. Yeah. That's I, I just see so people know where I'm coming from and it, and even Tom and I laugh at each other when I decided not to respond. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also think there's a role for confessional institutions. I just think the confessions are never set in stone. So it's right. always- And that's where we disagree. Like, yeah. I'm with the apostles. I, I like the apostles creed, even though it doesn't mention love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. I came across more negative against that than I probably am. But it's just oh, good. Glad it's always raised. Then. Yeah, it's always raised up. Well, what about the Apostles Creed as if like that's one statement that everybody can get behind? And I think, yeah, I don't think so. First of all, there's no love in it. Second of all, it starts the only real characteristic it talks about God is God being almighty. But that isn't even in the Bible, which my latest book is talking about. So, like, there's all kinds of problems with that creed. <laughs> well, you might have known. I'm sure you interacted with Billy Abraham, who I studied with. Yes. At yeah. And so, you know, you, you kind of anticipate where I might go on that. But I'm going to leave it. I'm going to yep. leave it. Okay. <laughs> so heaven or hell? Is there such a place? Is, is heaven or a reality that exists? And how can that motivate the Church of Nazarene? 
Yeah, this is like a question coming out of left field, I think, from what we've done in the past, but I, I think it's yeah. an important one. So I'm glad sure. you asked it. Yeah, I'm not criticizing you. I'm just saying oh, I, don't, I felt criticized. <laughs> I don't see a, a really clear connection between queer. Well, I'll tell issues. you why I asked it is that okay, okay. I asked this on the Salvation Army side because it's a more pressing issue there. And I think yeah. I just I felt like it brought some clarity um, that I didn't anticipate. So I thought I would throw it in here because I had a little okay. bit of time. Well, yeah, my answer is kind of long. Um, I'm going to try to do it really briefly, okay? Okay, I appreciate it, yeah. I think there are three major approaches to the afterlife amongst Christians, and I don't like any of the three, and I have my fourth alternative. Okay. One, one view of the afterlife is that some people to go to heaven for eternity, and God sends other people to hell for conscious torment for eternity. I don't think that's well uh, supported in scripture. And I don't think a loving God would ever do that to anybody. I think God's a forgiving God. So I reject the classic, we'll call it the classic view of hell. I don't think okay. it's a biblical view. So I'll, I'll call it the classic view. Second alternative, everybody goes to heaven. Classic universalism. You find this in Karl Barth, David Bentley Hart. Uh, it says, no matter what you do, you end up in the good place when you die. I reject that. I reject it based because it assumes a view of God's power that I don't think God has, but it also seems to undermine any real moral responsibility in the present, if that's the case. Third view, sometimes called conditionalism or annihilationism, it says that God doesn't send anybody held for eternity, but God either fries them through the fire or God decides not to resurrect them. So there's a passive annihilation. I don't like that view because I think it says God gives up on some people and the God I believe in is steadfastly loving and never gives up on anybody. My view says this, God always invites us to a life of love and we always have the free choice to say yes or no in this life and the next. And God never gives up inviting us. When we say no to God in this life and the next, there's hell to pay in the sense that there are natural negative consequences from saying no to love. So I'm not a classical universalist, but because I think God never gives up on anybody at any time, I have the genuine hope for the universal reconciliation of all things to use the Pauline language, just not the kind of thing that could only come if God, you know, omnipotently sends everybody to heaven and, and uh, in classic universalism. Long that answer, was a sorry. nice short answer. Thank you for making. I know that, that, that that's a couple of lectures, but I appreciate <laughs> that's uh, right. <laughs> but thanks so much, Tom, for your time today. And I, I hope that this conversation brings clarity to my friends in the church in Nazarene. And I hope my friends from other denominations who are checking this out just kind of can see some of the differences and see some of the things that other brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing in other denominations that this might help bring clarity to even those groups. So thank you, Tom. I appreciate your time. I look forward to seeing you again sometime in person and shaking your hand, having a cup of coffee. Yeah, well, you've been a gracious host, Andy. It's clear to me that we, you don't agree with all of my positions, but you've been really uh, very kind to let me sort of lay these ideas on the table. And even though I can see that you have some responses, you did a pretty good job of not, <laughs> of not retorting to my, my claims. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, yep. we'll be in touch. Thanks, Tom.